Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Are there any kids out there who actually like homework? If you're a parent, you know it can be a fight to get your child to do homework. Coming up, we talk to Kathy Vatterot, author of Rethinking Homework, Best Practices That Support Diverse Needs. What's the value of homework? And how have schools changed homework expectations in recent years? That conversation later. First, it's been 25 years since the Connecticut Supreme Court's landmark decision, Chef V. O'Neill, that was meant to address school desegregation. A cutline documentary by Connecticut Public focuses on the people impacted by the decision decades ago and today and asks this question, have local leaders succeeded in making sure all children have access to a quality integrated education? Joining us now is longtime education reporter Kathy Megan. She's associate producer on this Cutline documentary. Kathy, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. Great to be here. Thank you. So we've talked about, uh, generally, the show has talked about Chef O'Neill uh, in the past. So this was a, the original suit was filed in 1989, charging that the rights of Hartford kids were being violated because their schools were segregated. And there were also profound disparities when compared to kids in wealthier towns. And that trial took place in the early 1990s. How did the judge rule, Kathy? Well, Judge Harry Hammer in Superior Court ruled in 95 in favor of the state. Um, He ruled that without proof that government action created the segregation, um, the courts could not require steps that would change the composition of the city and suburban school enrollments. So um, the plaintiffs in the case, of course, were deeply disappointed when that ruling came out and they immediately appealed it to the the Connecticut Supreme Court. Um, And in 1996, um, the Supreme Court, the Connecticut Supreme Court overturned uh, Judge Hammer's decision with a split 4-3 decision, um, basically saying that um, that uh, the, the Hartford students were being denied their constitutional right to a substantially equal educational opportunity. Um, and, that, and then, go ahead. And then that, um, that decision uh, pretty much punted it back to the state and the legislature to respond. And so they created this voluntary system of magnets. So can you talk about that setup and some of the outcomes that we know today? Yes. Yep. Uh, a lot of advocates were very disappointed with that aspect of the decision that the Supreme Court did not um, prescribe some sort of remedy, um, but instead left it up to legislators. And the legislators... Um, realizing that they get elected by people who were not going to like it if they mandated some sort of um, busing or integration measures um, or redistricted, uh, decided to create a voluntary system um, involving the creation of magnet schools that would have suburban and Hartford kids um, come to them and create an an integrated environment um, and also expanding a program back then that was called Project Concern. Now it's called Open Choice 
where students from Hartford go out to the suburbs um, and also vice versa, though mostly it's the direction of going out to the suburbs. And then the technical high schools could all, would also be used as integrated settings. Um, so that was the direction they went in and it took a long time to get that going. The plaintiffs had to go <clears throat> back to the court many times to get the funding they needed to create the magnet schools. Um, but now today there are 40 magnet schools, nearly 20,000 students attend, um, go to school in magnets from Hartford and from the suburbs. Um, and about 2,300 students in the open choice program. Um, so, which basically in, in recent years, um, 44 to 49% of um, Hartford kids have had um, the opportunity to be in an integrated setting. Although during COVID last year, that percentage dropped down um, to 36.9%. And we're waiting to hear what the percentage is this year. We don't know. Um, but that, that drop, of course, was very disappointing to, to, um, to the plaintiffs in the case to see uh, fewer Hartford kids in integrated settings. But we're waiting to see um, uh, how that will, what will happen with that. I mean, there was another factor also that they switched the way they did the lottery. So they're not quite sure what caused the drop. <laughs> Let's talk more about the lottery because I, I wanted uh, to hear more about, you know, the, the decisions that are made about who gets to attend, right? Open choice and magnet schools. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, when we think about the remedy uh, to help, uh, especially Hartford kids, uh, you know, leave neighborhood schools um, and, you know, to go, their parents want them to go to a school that maybe has more resources, uh, more dedication to, to staff. Uh, you know, I'm just wondering if you can talk more about some of the outcomes and why the lottery system was complicated. Yes, the lottery system is very complicated. It's not, um, it's not like a typical lottery system where, you know, they draw names and you have a winner. It's, um, it's complicated because they're trying to get a mix of kids um, in the schools. And it used to be that they more or less used towns as a proxy um, for race so that they could, they knew that if they were admitting a, a child from Manchester, they were probably getting a white child. And if they were admitting you know, a child from Hartford, they were getting a child of color probably. Um, but a lot of that has changed as um, black and Hispanic families have moved to the suburbs. And um, so that's not as clear anymore. And it's it's been harder for them to reach their ratios. Now, there was a suit filed in 2018 that claimed that um, uh, that, the, that that essentially this, the state was um, discriminating against kids of color when it would try to sort of balance out these numbers in school and maybe not admit another um, black or Latino child to a school because I needed one more white kid to achieve. Um, they, they were they were basically pursuing a ratio of um, 25 percent of at least 25 percent white, Asian, or Native American, and a couple of other um, small percentages of uh, minority kids, but basically not Black and Hispanic kids. They were, they Black and Hispanic kids were not supposed to be more than like 75% of a school and white and Asian and Native American and Native Hawaiian kids, I think could, um, were supposed to be, um, uh, were, were supposed to account for at least 25%. So um, this suit resulted in a change to a, a lottery that's based on socioeconomic factors. So now when they, when they do the algorithm for the lottery, they are um, including 
uh, information about exactly the, the sort of census block data on where a student lives, um, what, the, what the family's income level is, and um, parents' educational level, and they're trying to use those socio-diverse kinds of factors to determine um, how they will uh, basically to weight um, um, the, the, the applicants and figure out a um, basically a, a, um, the population for the schools that they're trying to, to reach. If that makes sense, it's complicated. <laughs> Right. You're hearing Kathy Megan, associate producer and reporter on the latest Cutline documentary, Sheffy O'Neill, Striving Toward Education Equity. You talk to a, a lot of people in this documentary, uh, Kathy, people uh, involved in that original suit, uh, children who are now adults uh, who came up through uh, this, this new system. But you also interviewed uh, students like uh, Louis Salsona, who attends Buckley High School in Hartford. And he told you after middle school, he tried to get into a magnet school. This is what he shared. I wanted to go uh, to this magnet school because it was a very good school that would challenge me to do better. And the environment was way better than my middle school. But it's by chance and luck that you get into. I applied to three different magnet schools. They were all denied. Seeing the results made me feel very disappointed, but also devastated as well. There was three schools you could choose from if you couldn't get into any magnet schools. Buckley, Hartford High, and Weaver. Buckley is not a good school at all. It's worse than my middle school. There's people destroying bathrooms, so now they have to take out glass, like the mirrors. There are some students that are focused and doing their work, but there's also students like blasting music and not paying attention, running around the classroom. The teachers let it slide sometimes. Yeah, they would get annoyed and call the security, but security won't come up for little things like that. So they would leave it alone. It was hard to listen to that clip uh, when I first watched the documentary, uh, Kathy. I mean, you think about uh, students like Lewis who are looking for opportunity, but because of the way the system is set up, as he mentioned, it's chance and luck to get into a school that he think would be better for him. Uh, can you talk about that? And, you know, meanwhile, while there's uh, all this money uh, being put towards the Open Choice and Magnet program, you know, what's happening with the city schools in Hartford? Well, I mean, actually, lately, the city schools have gotten more money um, because of the um, the ESSA grants that have come through. Um, however, um, uh, it is very hard to listen to that, um, to listen to Lewis. And there are many students out there who have that same situation. And, and then they are left with um, going to city schools, which um, generally, you know, the kids do not perform as that on test scores and things, their their scores are not nearly as good as at the magnets, and um, and so in his case particularly, he's worried that he wants he wants to be a doctor, and he's worried he's not getting the kind of um, academic uh, experience that he needs to have um, in order to get into a good college and go to med school eventually. Um, so I think there are I mean there are a lot of people who feel that really more resources need to, to, to be directed to the neighborhood schools and they need to be 
um, brought up to a level so that if you don't win the lottery, you're still going to a very good school. Again, you're hearing Kathy Megan, associate producer, longtime education reporter on this new Cutline documentary, talking to people involved in that landmark case more than two decades ago, exploring the realities of whether Connecticut is achieving integrated quality education for all students. I wanted to bring into the conversation Henley Solomon, who grew up in Hartford, but was able to attend the West Hartford Public Schools from kindergarten through high school. Henley is now a teaching assistant at Conard High School in West Hartford. Henley, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So tell us about you know, where, where you grew up and some of the challenges that, that you noted um, and how you know, going to school in West Hartford, how that impacted you. So I grew up in the Open Choice program, being enrolled at the age of five. Um, I started my education career at West Hartford Public Schools at Braeburn Elementary um, from kindergarten. Now, I had a grace that not a lot of students who um, do have an open choice where Hartford is not that far from West Hartford, but most of my challenges um, did not come from necessarily um, having to travel the long distance as some of our students that you'll see in the documentary. Some kids will travel 35, 40 minutes just to get to school. One of the challenges that I faced was more along the lines of conformity and having to navigate a district that does not look like the culture that you were brought up in. And a lot of that um, tension um, really does affect, you know, a child at the age of five trying to navigate and trying to find their place in the school system. And that was hard for me and also my peers that were also being bussed out to the same district. Um, for me, it took me a while for me to come to a place where I could actually have my feet on the ground and be proud to say I'm a Black student. But at the time, because there wasn't that many students of color in my class or even the school or even an integrated staff, it was hard for me to find my way around and to navigate and to actually stand and be proud of who I am as a Black child. So when did you get to that point, Henley, where you were confident in uh, your background and uh, where you, uh, the place that you had uh, in that particular school at the time? Uh, when did that happen for you? It happened actually in high school. Mm. Um, by God's face, I had a set of friends who were actually my first Black friends, and they actually taught me how to really be proud of who I am and um, showed me black excellence. And they showed me how to not really take on the titles and the labels that people throw on you. And they challenged me in my academics. They challenged me to join extracurricular activities. And because of that, that just knit, that friendship bond that we've had, um, it literally put me on a path where I was doing more. I was expecting more. I was accomplishing more. But it took me until high school. I remember my high school graduation. I had the honor of giving the commencement speech. And I declared for the first time that I'm an open choice student. I'm a black male open choice student from Hartford. And for those who are listening, probably that moment was just, you know, I'm just stating facts or introducing myself. But for me, it was more of a declaration. It was more of a, I'm proud of who I am. And what led me to this point um, factors in my identity and who I am and what I have to offer. I was actually able to be a student representative on the Board of Education and speak about these issues that our students 
are facing and give voice to certain concerns that were absent amongst many conversations. So it took me a while. It took me a while um, by the help of my family, um, my friends especially. It really did give me um, some confidence and, you know, a little pride to be able to be comfortable in the skin that I was living in. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, what was your family's reaction uh, when you got into Open Choice and the way they saw you grow uh, within uh, the West Hartford School District, Henley? Well, my parents were actually very, um, we were very grateful. Um, At the time, the only options we had were Hartford um, Elementary Schools and recognizing that my mother also enrolled us in, tried to enroll us in, excuse me, magnet schools, and we were denied. So being that my godmother was the um, superintendent of the open choice program it really did help a lot for us to um, be enrolled into this open choice program to be able to go to west hartford public schools this was a relief for my parents and also looking back a relief for me i do not think that i'll be on the path that i am today if it wasn't for the opportunities and the resources that were offered to me here in west hartford I wanted to bring Kathy Megan back into the conversation. So last year, it was decided that every child that wants to be in an integrated setting can be. So how is that going to work? Well, that was part of the January 2020 settlement. Um, and um, because of COVID, that plan was um, delayed, it was supposed to be in by June of 21. Um, but they, but so they're still working on the plan. Um, and um, I, I think it's supposed to be done in, in the coming months. Um, but every time I ask about it, I'm, I'm not given any kind of date. Um, I think it's very it's a very complicated plan to come up with to ensure that every Hartford student who wants to be in an integrated setting can be. And I think um, there's there. I'm not sure what stage it's in, but eventually, I, I guess the plan would be through some mix of um, perhaps more magnets, more open choice. Um, and I'm not sure what else. I mean, there might maybe they'll come up with other creative options. Um, so that is, is still to be seen. Um, but I, I know that the plaintiffs in the case are extremely excited about that because over the years, they've had to go back time and time again to like add more magnet seats, add more open choice seats. And this would be um, a long-term plan that would uh, be more of a, a settlement once and for all. You know, another solution uh, that I know that some of the advocates that you interviewed in this documentary mentioned is that, you know, a big barrier in our state to getting truly integrated schools is that our towns and cities remain segregated. There are fewer options for affordable housing outside cities. Uh, Advocates saying that housing segregation leads to school segregation. That's why there needs to be a variety of housing options in all communities uh, to help schools integrate naturally. Uh, Kathy, we know local zoning laws often prevent these different housing options. Is Connecticut getting closer to resolving housing segregation? That's a huge question, and that's not actually my specialty. Um, uh, but but I know that there's w- way more awareness and discussion about this, and I, I believe that there's discussion coming up, probably perhaps in this legislative session, um, some of these issues will be tackled. I, I think that... Um, I think there's way more, you know, many more people and legislators who are determined to do something about this. And I'm not exactly sure where they are along that timeline, but um, that is a huge underlying issue and, uh, you know, a fundamental thing that if it could change would really help efforts to integrate schools. 
Again, you've been hearing Kathy Megan here on Where We Live, associate producer and reporter on the Cutline documentary, Sheffy O'Neill. You can watch that documentary at ctpublic.org. Thank you, Kathy, for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. Appreciate it. <laughs> and also Henley Solomon, teaching assistant with Conard High School. Henley, thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue talking about education, specifically a conversation about homework. Is it necessary? Parents, we want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What's the point of homework? I see my children flutter their eyes at me when I remind them to get their homework done. If you're a parent, how do you get your kids to do their homework? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, in recent years, schools across the country are rethinking their expectations of assignments done at home. Joining us now is the self-proclaimed homework lady. Kathy Vatterod is the author of Rethinking Homework, Best Practices That Support Diverse Needs. She's also a professor of education at University of Missouri, St. Louis. Kathy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for being here. My favorite topic to talk about. <laughs> so homework, uh, something that has been an expectation uh, for as long as uh, schools have been around, Kathy? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it, I mean, it really is as old as the one-room schoolhouse. Where, where kids had to recite their lessons and they had to go home and practice reciting their lessons. So it's been around for a long time, but uh, teachers have really never been trained in what is effective homework. So we just keep doing what we've been doing. That's interesting. You just said teachers have never been trained about what is effective. So even in 2021, that, that's, that holds true, Kathy? Um, I, every time I do a workshop around the country and I ask teachers, in a big group who's been trained in effective homework, uh, I might get one or two hands out of hundreds of people. So it's yeah. just not been not been part of the curriculum of teacher training. 
And so what is effective when we think about how to utilize, you know, homework in, in, in curriculum? Well, I think uh, when I wrote the book, I came up with four basic uh, concepts about homework. And the first one is that it ought to be doable. So if it can't be done without help, it's not good homework. And that's part of the frustration that you see with parents um, and that it has a clear purpose. So if I'm a parent, I should, there should be something written on that that says the reason we're doing this is or the purpose or the goal is. Um, but I think we're learning now that uh, some tasks just aren't efficient. Um, do we need, does the child need to do 40 problems to show that they know how to do the problem? Um, and what we're seeing now over the last several years uh, of what's really become important with learning, what we know about brain research, is that kids have to have some ownership. They have to have some choices in what they're doing um, and some flexibility in what they're doing. Exactly. So when you think about, you know, having, telling kids that they have to do something, that's where you get the pushback, at least in my house, Kathy. <laughs> exactly. But when we look at uh, you know, homework and you know, what's effective and what isn't, thinking about like different grade levels. So if a child is in elementary school, you know, what's the average amount of homework that they may be getting or what is that homework exactly? Well, so the average amount, it varies widely. And uh, it's, sort, it's almost, it, it's, it's really interesting that in the wealthier communities, students tend to have more homework. And that's because there's a confusion that more homework means that it's a more rigorous school when it could just all be busy work. Um, so in terms of what is the appropriate amount of homework, the research sort of follows what they call the 10-minute rule that a uh, student shouldn't have more than 10 minutes per grade level per night. So that would be two hours for a high school student and 10 minutes for a first grader. Uh, and you've got schools in which students, elementary kids are coming home with an hour. High school kids are coming home with several hours. Uh, and so what we know is that there's a wide variance, but that it's really not effective past a certain Point of time. Wow, that sounds something when an elementary school student comes home with an hour of homework a night. Uh, Jason shared on Facebook through middle and high school in Springfield, uh, they had roughly three hours of homework a night. And when he moved to Connecticut, he was surprised to find the homework load wasn't a rigid time requirement. Instead, there was more of an emphasis on long form reports and essays projects, and most importantly, critical thinking. And Jason writes, that approach to homework prepared me for the type of assignments that I had in college, much more than the practice of regurgitating information. So respond to that, Kathy, when we think about the wow, type of homework he, I that high schoolers. Put it better my, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, and that's what we are, are trying to get away from, it, that, that rote sort of task. Uh, and that's exactly what, where we need to go in terms of preparing students for college. Um, I teach uh, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors in college, and they often don't know how to think. They don't know how to do that critical thinking because they've just had those real low-level tasks. So he is dead on there. Mm -hmm. Oh, when we think about the last 20 or so months, how the pandemic kind of blurred the lines, right, of what homework or assignments were sent home because they were home. 
Right. And so when the pandemic started, I said, oh, my goodness, it's all homework. Um, and, and, it, and it was really interesting to see the reality of that, that teachers found out that, wow, I really don't have control over whether that student logs in or not. I really don't. And we knew we didn't have control over kids doing homework. And, and we've known that for a long time. But, but yeah, it really exposed a lot of the flaws of some of the things that we sent home. I wanted to hear from a local educator. We'll be doing that in just a, another minute or so, uh, Kathy. But when we think about, um, I, you know, earlier you'd mentioned that um, in wealthier communities there might be more homework. Is there a correlation between, you know, the more that's expected from a student, the better they'll do when we think about, you know, all the emphasis on testing? No, there really is not. Um, that the, the research shows us that there is an end point that after that 10 minutes per grade level per night, that achievement actually goes down, which makes sense because students are burned out and they're tired. But one of the things that we know is that it's really not about, time is not the metric. The metric really is about the quality of the task, the things that I mentioned before um, that really make a difference. And so there's no way to really prove that more is better it's we're what your what your uh what your gentleman said that it's about whether it's depth of learning critical thinking and what are we asking kids to do you're hearing kathy vatterot here on where we live professor emeritus of education at university of missouri st louis also author of rethinking homework best practices that support diverse needs we'd love to hear from you if there are uh, observations from the way your child's school is sending uh, assignments home and, and how uh, your child responds to that, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom, Kate Diaz, who is a high school math teacher in Manchester, also president of the Connecticut Education Association. That's the largest teachers union in our state. Kate, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. So I'd love to hear from first from your uh, teacher perspective uh, throughout your career, you know, how you've approached homework, Kate. Um, so I think that kind of as Kathy mentioned, I've approached homework a very different way as my career has evolved. I think when I, I joined the profession as a young teacher, Kathy's right. We don't we didn't really talk about homework, its purpose, its function. So we sort of did what we've always done. And as my sort of career has evolved, I've certainly questioned the practice and thought more appropriately about what am I trying to accomplish with these tasks? Oftentimes you have students who don't do the homework. So we had to shift our instructional practices because you can't you couldn't rely on the homework being completed, which then started to drive the question of, okay, wait a minute, is practice appropriate or should I be looking at other skill sets for them to develop during sort of the homework experience and really drove that home, that question of what are we asking kids to do and why are we asking them to do it? And developmentally, what is the appropriate task um, because it might be different for a ninth grade uh, student and a high school student in an AP Calc course. So we really started to differentiate between 
what was going to be meaningful and purposeful in the developmental process. Um, and as Kathy indicated, it's not that you necessarily get a lot of training in this, but we as colleagues really sat down and started to look at our curriculum and say, what is it that we want students to experience together in a group? What do we want them to develop independently? What is the purpose of deadlines? How do we execute those? Um, how do we weight homework so that it doesn't become a barrier to success um, and that it has its appropriate placement? Uh, long gone are the days where homework is, you know, a 50% of your grade kind of scenario. We really look at it, um, and certainly I started to adopt a philosophy of effort. Did you try? Did you think about this? Did, can, you, can you demonstrate that you, you worked through some challenging questions um, and you really thought about what we've been doing? And in math, we really started to look at it from a spiraling effect because what we know with math is if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. So we started to develop sets that uh, problem sets that weren't about doing 40 problems of the same type over and over again, because that just increases frustration. I mean, if you can't do that first problem, you can't do the next 39. So that's just a, a exercise in frustration. So we started to really ponder and think about what's a meaningful spiral of content knowledge. Mm -hmm. So can I draw upon something they did maybe you know, a week or two ago to keep it current and relevant that's going to apply to what we're working on now. So it's familiar, it's comfortable, but we need to keep that content current. Are there questions we can pose that ask them to think critically um, about the information we've been working on? And certainly to not try and dive into new territory, because I think what we recognized, and particularly in math, is that asking kids to dive into completely new territories without some background just yields you frustrated, angry students. And that seems um, to contradict the desirable learning environment. Right. Um, so we really developed a much more interactive approach uh, to, I think, homework and, and really tried to, uh, particularly, and you mentioned about the pandemic, that really, as you said, it blurred the lines um, between homework and schoolwork. And we really did start to develop philosophies of, like, hey, there, here's the assignments that you have this week. And let's see what, you know, some of them will be done in school. Some of them maybe started in school, finished at home, and really started to integrate this concept of what do we want the students to experience and how do we want them to complete those tasks? And Kate, does um, that and mean, what kind of flexibility? Kate, does that mean setting aside more time in the classroom where they are doing the problems and you can see uh, what they're struggling with versus sending home the worksheets the traditional way <laughs> or how oh, I remember I school? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we really recognize that to have homework be functional and meaningful, we really need them to feel confident in the work. And so oftentimes we now have um, a, an assignment that gets started in class and you say things like, I want you to finish this for homework. So we're going to get you off the ground. We're going to kind of troubleshoot. We're going to make sure you have some examples to follow. And then if you're asked to can, you know, kind of continue this process, it's really about continuing with something that's familiar and making sure we're not losing kind of ground um, and we're developing an idea that you've already started because we recognize that sending a kid home to do something that just makes them frustrated is a waste of our time. You mentioned that you sit down with your colleagues and you think about um, how uh, homework should be uh, 
brought into uh, the lesson plan. I'm wondering, though, from the state level or from the school board level, you know, how are they thinking about homework? Are there uh, guidance points that um, they're they're um, giving to particular schools and, and staff? I wonder if you can talk us through that. Sure. You know, the 10 minute rule that Kathy referenced it tends to be historically the the mindset. Um, the state board of ed basically kind of set the policy that every district should have a homework policy that's articulated. So you'll find that across the state of Connecticut, homework policies are articulated um, in writing in at the district level. Oftentimes they do really mirror that 10 minute mindset of 10 minutes per grade level. What we've also started to really see become more widespread, particularly in the elementary school areas, is the notion that um, every kid should be reading every night because the most critical skill set for a student to develop is reading comprehension. And so some component of reading, particularly at the elementary level, has become sort of the standard homework um, and that recognizing that you know, worksheets are fine. They, there's a place for them. I have colleagues who say things like, you know, we have kids who want to take a worksheet home, so they'll create an optional homework station. And that satisfies some of the parental interest in seeing, um, hey, what's this, what are my students working on? Uh, because we do also recognize, particularly at elementary, that homework is a vehicle of communication with families. So it's not that we want it to be absent. We just want it to be right-sized. Um, so there's been a greater emphasis emphasis more recently on reading and that, hey, read a, read something good tonight, whatever that is by your standard, uh, and talk to your parents about it or talk to your brothers or sisters about it and starting to develop those types of skill sets um, as being really a priority in the learning process. I wanted to hear uh, Kathy Vatterot respond to what you shared, Kate. Uh, Kathy, what do you think about that, especially the, what she just said about homework can be a line of communication uh, from the teacher uh, to the parent? Um, it can be, but I also think that um, that's not a reason to send it home, of course. But let me just say that what they're doing, what she was talking about, I wish I could clone around the country that the way that the thoughtful process that they are doing in terms of designing the tasks and figuring out what's the best thing. Um, so as far as that communication to parents, I think there are many ways to communicate with parents. I'm a former school principal, and I, I know that there are all kinds of ways that we can communicate with parents. Um, so it does homework show parents what the students are doing at school? Yes, it does. Um, and I don't know, how much more do you want me to talk about parents? Because I have all kinds of things to say well, about I parents. Was I was just thinking how the line of communication, you know, I had alluded to like the conflict <laughs> that, um, you know, sometimes arises when parents are trying to, you know, encourage their kids to get their homework done. You know, when kids come home, they're tired. As they get older, they're exactly. involved in more and more extracurricular activities. And then you're, exactly. you know, moving the, the homework time later in the evening. I mean, it just seems like, you know, it's just not not a good place to, to be in. And so thinking about ways that it can be more responsive uh, Kathy? Well, I, uh, I am kind of an activist when it comes to um, parental input on the homework process. And I, uh, I believe that parents do have a right to um, protect their child's well-being, sleep, downtime. And 
what's happening around the country is that parents are pushing back if they feel it's excessive. And uh, there are all kinds of methods for doing that. But um, what parents are, are saying is that I'm, I'm going to protect my child's well-being. And um, I was lucky in the sense that uh, my son was on an IEP. And so I was able to say we want less homework. But parents now all over the world are starting to communicate back to teachers that this is how long this assignment took, or this, this is what frustrated my students. So um, I was the queen of post-it notes, and I would like <laughs> to see parents do more um, communicating back and not feel bad about saying, my child did not understand this. Please go back and explain it to him again. That's really interesting. Uh, we're going to keep talking with Kathy Vatterot here on uh, where we live. Uh, before we break, though, uh, Kate Diaz, just uh, we have a couple of minutes. I just wanted to ask you um, to respond to that. You know, how, do you hear from parents who um, have concerns about homework? How do you resolve that? Uh, she's absolutely correct. Parents do reach out, and oftentimes, you know, we're we're really at the mercy of what students tell us. So I always tell parents, please communicate with us if there are things that are going on that we're not aware of because we're not in the homes. And so we do establish what we believe is kind of the guideline for homework. And if it isn't what's matching up with your student's experience, we want to know. So we make appropriate adjustments. You know, as Kathy indicated, we can truncate uh, assignments. We can give longer periods of time for completion. We can provide additional support. We can, you know, uh, give opportunities for students to come after school to kind of work through things together so they feel like they're, they're confident in what they're doing. There's a lot of ways that we're going to work with families, um, but we can't do what we don't know. So she's great. Uh, you know, the post-it notes is wonderful. Certainly, we've seen an uptick in communication now that email is, is creating like such a, a quick line of communication. Um, and I don't know many teachers who get upset if a parent goes, hey, I'm really worried this took my student like 45 minutes to complete the, that assignment. We don't want that. If our plan is for a 20 minute experience and it's 45, we wanna know so that we can adjust and make sure that the student, again, the, the goal is never frustration. So um, challenge, yes, frustration, no. Mm -hmm. So we wanna do things that are appropriate. So communication is always welcome um, between parents and teachers. And thank you, Kate Diaz, uh, for your perspective. A high school math teacher, also president of the Connecticut Education Association. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Kathy Vatterot, again, will stay with us. She's the homework lady, professor of education at University of Missouri, St. Louis. We're talking about best practices that support diverse needs. Uh, that's part of the title of her book. What questions do you have about homework your child receives? Or what have you noticed at home? You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about homework with Kathy Vatterot, professor of education at University of Missouri-St. Louis, author of Rethinking Homework, Best Practices That Support Diverse Needs. So, Kathy, what are some alternatives to traditional homework? Well, I would say the big alternative is to give students choices, put students in charge of developing a task uh, instead of having the the same task for all students. So part of the problem when uh, Kate was talking about the task that they think takes 20 minutes and, and, uh, and it takes 40 is that students have different working speeds. And I advocate that teachers tell students how much time something should and then have them draw a line after they spend that much time so that teachers can see if that task needs to be um, adapted for that student. Uh, And the other thing that Kate mentioned about reading at the elementary level uh, is definitely choice reading uh, has been shown to be more, um, that correlate more highly with achievement on tests than any other uh, type of homework. Uh, and then I'll say one more thing, and that is that for uh, upper-level students, practice testing has shown to be more effective than students redoing their notes, making outlines of their notes or whatever, because practice, uh, practice uh, testing uh, activates this retrieval memory uh, of students. So those are just a couple of things that we're seeing. Uh, well, and flipping, I forgot to talk about that. So what we're seeing that's really um, taking off at the secondary level is the concept of the flipped classroom, where the homework is for the students to watch a video of the instruction, and then they come back in the classroom and they do what would be the practice or the application homework when their teacher is there with them. You know, we just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Kathy. I, we often hear from uh, policymakers about um, how other countries are doing when we think about uh, learning outcomes. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that, you know, how are there models and, you know, abroad uh, when we think about, you know, learning and what's effective in terms of, of, of homework or no homework? Well, they all, there always is this tendency to try to say, oh, other countries that do more homework achieve better, when what we found out was that around the world, that the um, countries that give the most homework are actually achieving less, and that it's really not about the amount of homework, but it's more about the whole educational system that makes the difference. Can I ask you about technology? Because in the past, you know, as we were talking about the pandemic, too, um, you know, such a reliance now on on school iPads or Chromebooks. Um, You know, I see my elementary uh, daughter where her homework is, you know, doing these more responsive programs uh, that kind of see where the child is in terms of their math or or English skills. You know, what does the evidence show? Is this a a good way for, for children to be using their time at home? The, the thing about technology is if, if it's done properly, it allows the student to get immediate feedback. It allows the teacher to see where stu- how students are doing. 
So I don't have a, a problem with the use of technology as long as it is interactive and the students uh, are, are allowed to get feedback in those situations. I think that's what, that's what gives us the advantage in terms of technology. Hmm. Well, it's been really interesting uh, to, to hear uh, from you and what the evidence shows about homework. I just wanted to share a, a quick comment we got on Facebook, Kathy. Uh, Megan wrote, you know, I heard your guests say parents all over the country are asking for less homework, but I find the opposite as a teacher. I've had many parents, even during our COVID year, request more. And then you need to supply extra assignments uh, to sp- specific students. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, take. Um, yes, there are always those parents that think that students should have more homework. I think you decide what is appropriate for your students. And if parents want more, I've seen schools that leave a challenge packet in the office or they give parents a list of websites for students. I don't think that is our responsibility as teachers to spend a lot of time creating those extra assignments. I think it's more appropriate to put that back to the parents and say, here are some websites, here are some things you can do, and then uh, let the parents make those decisions. But I think teachers need to be making a decision about what they think is the appropriate amount. That's Kathy Vatterod, again, Professor Emeritus of Education at University of Missouri-St. Louis, author of Rethinking Homework, Best Practices That Support Diverse Needs. Kathy, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, love doing it. It's always fun. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, there's a growing nursing shortage in our country. There's also a growing interest in the profession. We'll talk to local nurses entering the field. We'll also hear from nursing educators and experts about why the term burnout doesn't capture what's driving the nursing shortage. That conversation tomorrow.